John 13, 31 through 35, and I'll read it for us this morning. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Thank you, sir. All right, thank you, Sean. I tell you, it's a privilege to read the Word of God, and I hope that uh, some of you might be saying, hey, I want to go up and read the Bible during this service, and uh, that's a legit desire. I want you to want that. And so Pastor Kyle back there would be the one that you want to go talk to. And uh, even if you're nervous, it's amazing that God gives you the poise, gives you the power to be able to do even something like that. And this church center, centers on the Word of God, and we're going to always do that. All right, here's what we're doing. We're in a series called The Heart of a Family. And what we're trying to uncover from the Word of God are themes that God gives us for a family, a nuclear family, your own earthly family that pleases Him. How do we have a family that pleases Him? So mom and dad and kids, we're all in this together. We all have to make the family strong together. So how does God show us the way to have that kind of family? And then by extension, how do those same themes come into our church family? How do we learn to love one another? How do we learn to have harmony with one another? How do we learn to forgive and encourage one another and honor one another and serve one another? All of those have been themes that we've looked at. And we're about to look at what actually is the base theme that motivates all of the ones that I just mentioned. The grand meta-narrative, some would say, the great story that overgirds and undergirds and oversees everything in the Word of God, and we're going to look at love. So I hope you have your Bible still open. You're going to need to be in your Bible. We're going to look at this together, and what I'm going to show you is actually beginning at the throwaway part. I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean the part that we usually hurry up and read to get to the good part. Look at verse 31 again. John is writing, one of the disciples of Jesus, he said, when he had gone out, Jesus said. Now, we usually throw that away. We usually get through that quickly. We don't really stop to think about it. But we really need to think about it because this is about Judas, the betrayer. Judas, the betrayer, left to arrange the betrayal. And what John is saying, it was only then, it was only then when Judas left that Jesus really unzipped his heart and gave his intimacy, his transparency, showing the disciples the full nature or the fuller nature of his heart. There's something that needed to be done. Judas needed to leave. Now it's just his family. Judas was never part of his family. Now it's his family, and now Jesus can display really who he was, really what's in his heart. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three things, and it will provide the outline for us today. We're going to see the display of God's love. We'll see the power available to love like him. 
And then we're going to see the command to love like God, the display of his love, the power available to love like him, and the command to love like God. So let's get right into it. I've got a lot to teach you. Now, I'm going to actually, let me do one more thing really quickly. Let me sort of set up, I think, the importance of this sermon, and particularly this passage. I am 55 years old. I've been, been a Christian for over, well, actually for five decades. I got saved when I was very young, but it did not really root until I was in fifth grade. And in fifth grade, an insatiable desire overcame me from God. It had to be. I don't know how else to explain it. To read God's word. I just could not get enough of God's word. For 45, almost fit, about 44 years, I have been studying to try to understand what is the gospel. And honestly, I'm gonna be very, very clear with you. Full disclosure, I feel like just now, just recently, I'm beginning to truly understand it. I've been looking at this for four decades. And I think that's true for most Christians that I know. You know about the gospel informationally. You know about the construct of the gospel. You know it's the good news of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. You can put it into a linear outline, likely. But do you really know the power of the gospel? I liken it this way, and so some of us are going to understand this. Let's say that you're changing the oil on your car. And you're beginning to try to change the oil filter. You're trying to spin that off, and sometimes that can get really locked on tightly, and your hands are full of oil. And you're trying to spin that slick, slippery filter off, and you cannot gain purchase. You get it to move an eighth of an inch, and then it sticks again. You know, that's what it's like trying to grasp and master the gospel, to truly understand it. It is so slippery. You get, a, you get a peek at it, you begin to see it, then all of a sudden your vision closes back down. What we're doing in these sermons week after week is to try to invite you into understanding the mystery of this gospel so that you can go beyond information. You can go beyond the system of the good news to really understanding and experiencing the power of the good news. So here we go, the display of God's love. Let's look at again in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And you've got to be thinking, like I was, this is a tongue twister. What does this even mean? I'm looking at this this last week, and I'm going, I don't have any idea what he's saying. I had to really study this. Well, I'm going to give you a word that really can help. In fact, you can substitute the word glory or glorifying or glorified with the word display. Now, let me reread it again. Now is the Son of Man displayed, and God is displayed in him. If God is displayed in him, God will also display him in himself and display him at once. Now, you're thinking, okay, well, that, that's a little bit more mentally palatable of a word, but I still don't really get what he's saying, and that's my job now to help you get it. We're going to unpack this. Let me unpack it starting this way. Advertising. You're bombarded by it. 
It's on the radio. It's on TV. It's on YouTube. It's all over the net, the uh, the internet, on your news channels. There's constantly popping up ads, and advertisers have figured something out. Did you know this? This is legit. And they really figured it out. The desires of your heart are not so much motivated. They don't really lurch into motion by hearing about something. No, they know it's when you see something. And what they've learned and what they are mastering is that the heart, your desires, will follow your eyes. The picture of that dessert that you uh, see that makes you download the recipe and then run to the store to get the ingredients you don't have. Why? Because you've got to have that dessert. That swimsuit few more months, it's going to be beach season, that swimsuit and that ad. You are just convinced it's going to look so good on you. You've got to go get it. That new video game trailer that drops online and you are now consumed with getting it as fast as you can because your very existential happiness depends on it. This is what advertisers know. This is how they get us. They present something before our eyes. They know our hearts are going to be drawn after them. In fact, I'll give you one phrase from modern culture. You finish the statement. Love at first. Come on, people. That was so weak. Love at first. The world knows this. Your heart, my heart is drawn after our eyes. It's in the seeing. It's in the laying our eyes on something. It's in the beholding that affects our desires so strongly. Now, let me give you an example of this. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor here at this church, we took about 80-something kids to a beach retreat. It was an awesome experience. Ocean City, New Jersey. And we're on the beach, and that weekend, a lot of our theme had been modesty, both for guys and girls. How do we not draw attention to ourselves and lift up those around us in humility? Well, we went to the boardwalk that night. We had about two or three hours of free time, and all we asked is get in groups. We don't want anybody by themselves. I had all 15 to 20 of my leaders interspersed around these groups. I'm in one group, and it happened to be a lot of our teenage girls. And one girl that weekend kept really pushing back on the need for modesty, the biblical call for modesty. We're on the boardwalk. You can imagine this. In the evening, on a Friday, no, it was on a Saturday, I'm sorry, and on the right side of us, we're walking down the boardwalk. The beach is on our right, leaning against the rail at Ocean City Boardwalk where all kinds, dozens and dozens of guys. I said to the, uh, one of the girls that had been, the one girl that had been pushing back against this theme for the weekend, I said, listen, I want to I want to do something. I want to show you an experiment. Can you hang back here with me for just a little bit? So we dropped back about 30 feet behind all of her girlfriends, probably 10 or 12 girls all walking together down the boardwalk. And I said, listen, I want you to do something for me. Will you just watch the eyes of the guys leaning against the rail when our girls walk by? Sure enough, They walk by in these vultures of men, of which all men are part of at times, start looking at various parts of the bodies of our girls, 
and then turning to each other, laughing and high-fiving. And I turned to the girl with me, what did you just see? And she was appalled. Listen, your heart will follow your eyes. The desires of your heart follow your eyes. Now, let me explain something that ought to profoundly motivate you. How do you change? How do you change your inner disposition? How do you change your character? Let me teach you how that works, and you're going to hear the good news of the gospel. What you behold, what you gaze upon, what you see, what you're consumed with will always change you into its likeness. Do you understand that? That's the principle all the way through the Bible. And when you behold and when I gaze upon and when we see the glory of Jesus, when we are consumed with the display of the infinite perfections of Jesus, our hearts will be drawn after him. Who we are on the inside will change. But let me tell you about a lie of the world. The, Lord, the world has a great deception. It says that we can change our inside only when you change your outside. If you want to be a new you, you've got to get a new environment. Your outside, your externals need to change. Here's four examples. This job is depressing me. Well, what's the world say? Get on ZipRecruiter. Get a new job. This marriage is taking the joy from me. What's the world say? Find a divorce lawyer and eventually find a new spouse. My professor is making me stupid, making me feel stupid. Well, what do you do? The world says, drop the class. Get a better professor. COVID is making me anxious. Well, the world says, isolate yourself. You see, one of the lies of the world is this. You've got to change your environment. You've got to change your situation. You've got to change your outside if you want to experience inside change. That, my friends, is a lie, and I will put it to the test in two biblical examples. Number one, the Garden of Eden was perfect. You cannot find a better environment. It's literally sinless. And yet Adam and Eve fell. The environment did not determine that. Well, let me give you even a better one that I think will answer even some of the angst that's in some of our hearts. And that is Josiah, eight years old, has a, an incredibly wicked, ungodly father who is the king of Judah. And his father dies and Josiah becomes the king of Judah at eight years old old. And the Bible says of him that no king followed the Lord better than Josiah. His wicked father, his wicked lineage, his ungodly family did not determine the heart of Josiah. You see, the lie of the world is, it's a lie. The, the outside does not determine your inside. So how do you change? Well, if you want your character and you want your heart to change, here it is. It's so simple when I say it, but it is so vastly deep when you live it. If you want your character, you want your inside to change, then behold the glory. 
the display of the infinite perfections of Jesus. Look at it, gaze at it, follow it, be consumed by it, and your heart will be drawn after him. Now, you've got to be thinking, no way. There's no way that that works. Let me take you to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 3.18, watch, pay attention, see what this says. And we all with unveiled face, look at the underlining, beholding the glory of the Lord. Not once and done, every day, every moment, beholding present tense into the future. The glory of the Lord are what? Are being transformed into what? The same image, into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another. Our inner disposition is becoming like Christ. How? Simply, wonderfully, incredibly beholding the glory, the infinite display of God's perfections. Now, I know there's got to be skeptics here. I told you this is a slippery oil filter. You can barely grasp it. But you must if you want to change. John Owen, who died in the late 1600s, was a brilliant Puritan theologian and pastor, did more teaching on this subject than anyone that I know of. John Owen said this, inner change cannot come by mastering your will. You cannot change who you are by trying to persuade your heart. There is no power in it. Here's what he says bring change. The beholding of the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world or that which is to come. It is that whereby the beholding of Christ, the glory of Christ, it is that whereby they are first gradually conformed into it and then fixed in the eternal enjoyment of it. You know what he's saying? John Owen's saying this, that here the eyes of your faith must behold the glory of Jesus, his infinitely divine, perfect attributes. But one day you're going to see him in eternal glory face to face. You won't need eyes of faith anymore. You will see him with your very own eyes and your transformation will be fixed. That's how you grow. You look at Jesus on that cross You look at God who provides yet another meal. You get up in the morning and you are awestruck that while you had to sleep to recharge your body's batteries because of your finite nature, God never slept or slumbered. He never needs to recharging, and he watches over you while you sleep. If you have a nightmare, your father allowed you to have it, and he will be the one you flee to to recover from it. And the more you behold him, the more you see him, the more your eyes of faith can acknowledge him, your heart will be drawn after him, and you will be transformed bit by bit from one degree of glory to another. It's the only way we change. But we've got to move on to the second point. Where's the power coming from in order to love like God? Where do we get the power? Where do we get the means Well, Jesus goes on, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, 
You cannot come. And again, while this is not a tongue twister like verse 31, it's hardly more penetrable with insight. It's so seemingly difficult. What is he saying? Well, I'll tell you what he's saying. He's telling his disciples that there's a road he has to walk along, and he's the only one who can walk it. Where I am going, you cannot come. The power and the ability to, comp- to accomplish the command that Jesus is about to give, only God supplies. That power must come from him. Well, where is he going? Where is the road that he alone can walk? It's the Calvary road. It is the cross. It is death. It is resurrection. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's his crucifixion. Well, what's he mean that where I am going, you cannot come. There were a lot of people crucified in the first century. In fact, in AD 70, when Jerusalem rebelled against Rome, Rome came with a particular viciousness. And I'll read you an account from one Roman historian, AD 70. He says this, the, the soldiers, out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught, one after one way and another after another, to the crosses, by way of jest, when their multitude was so great, listen to this, that, that room was wanting for the crosses. They ran out of wood. They ran out of trees. And crosses were wanting for the bodies. They ran out of Jews to kill. That's fact. So there's a lot of people that were put to death by crucifixion. So why does Jesus mean where I am going, you cannot follow? Surely they could be crucified. But what he means is that only he, the perfect, sinless Son of God, could die a death so powerful that it could take away your sins. That hideous cross is the road to salvation, and it will take you from death to life. Now, I've got to explain this, and I need you to get this, and I'm going to try to put this in a way that you're all going to grasp this and be able to share it with other people. So I want you to imagine, if you will, a mountain so vast that makes Mount Everest look puny in comparison. This mountain is so great. It is so big. It is so high that every human being who has ever lived from Adam all the way until now is climbing up that great mountain and we are all roped together. The rope begins at Adam, it goes to the next in line, next in line, next in line. You're in that roped line. And I want you to imagine that you're climbing up this mountain when all of a sudden the lead climber The first human in history, Adam, loses his footing. He slips, and he begins to fall and slide down that ice-covered mountain towards the yawning edge of an almost infinite, bottomless chasm. And he falls over the edge. But he's roped to the next person, and he takes him with him. And the next person with him, and the next person, and next, and next, and you now are sliding. You now have gone over the edge. You now are falling what seems to be infinite. When will, in my terror, will I hit the bottom? You're falling as well. So am I. 
because we're all roped together. But there's another one on that mountain. His name is Jesus. And he stands fast, immovable, secure. He never succumbs to temptation. He never defies his father. He never rebels. He is obedient to God. He fulfills all of the Old Testament law. He's able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. He becomes the only safe, stable, secure point on that mountain of life. And the moment while you're falling, that your eyes open and you believe. He cuts your tether to Adam and reties it to himself. And he arrests your fall. And he begins hand over hand, pulling you back up that drop, up over the lip, puts you on the side of that mountain and begins walking with you with secure, righteous hand holding you, stable footing. And one day you will reach the top and one day you will go into glory. Why? Because the Son of God in his glory and his display of infinite perfections will never let you go. Have you believed on Jesus? Have you truly believed on him whose glory is on full display for eyes of faith to see? And then gaze on him, look at him, see him, praise him, adore him, and your heart will have the power to be able to do what he's about to command degree by degree, bit by bit with ever increasing glory. Well, what is he about to command? Point number three, my final point. It's the command to love like God. Well, we've seen the display of God's love. We've seen the means and the power to love it's through Jesus. Now we see the command to love. And look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. All right, now let me remind you what you just learned. The moment you trusted in Jesus for salvation, you were saved from death. Yet you've got to understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, always has a from and a for. It has a from and a for. Now something, how many online or here, how many of you are teachers? I don't know if you know the power that you possess I had an English teacher one time teach me the prepositional table, and I, I can't unlearn it. Of and by, to, for, with, add on front, into, under, toward, between, down, among, over, cross, against. I don't know why I remember that. I literally can't stop remembering that. I can't remember scripture hardly, but I remember my preposition table. Well, these are two prepositions, from and for, and I want you to understand this is always the gospel. You are not only saved from death, Jesus holding the rope secure, his feet planted, you are saved for life. I'm going to show you that in the Bible. Truly, truly, John 5, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. You're saved from it, but has passed from death to life. 
You see, if you take those apart and you separate the bad news that you and your rebellion, I and my, and my rebellion, we were the right, just recipients of the wrath of God. That's the bad news that makes the good news so great. But Jesus stepped into the stream of that wrath. Jesus took my place on the stand. Jesus took the punishment that should have been mine, should have been yours, and in his place, in its place, gave us life gave us righteousness. That's the gospel. Not only does he give us life, listen, he is our life. And that life gives us a new potential. And when you walk with him in fellowship, he is supplying you with new and pure desires. And listen, here's the point. The greatest of all the desires that the new life in Christ will, will be, that you will experience is love. And I want to remind you of something that we saw two weeks ago. There are four Greek words in the Bible, actually three Greek words in the Bible for love. There's four. One of them's never found in the Bible. The greatest of all the Greek words for love is the word here, agape. It's agape love, but what is it? Agape love is the love that exists in the heart of God. It's an unswervingly other-centered Concerned for the well-being of others, whether they deserve it or not. It doesn't matter if they deserve it. That's the nature of mercy. But I need you to understand something critical about God's love. Now listen, if you have not really listened to too much of this sermon yet, well, then I'm going to ask you, this is where you really want to come in. You know, I, I sit under a lot of preaching as well. I listen to about five to eight sermons a week from my favorite preachers that nourish me and fill me up. And man, my, my, my mind wanders just like yours does, right? I'm in it, and then all of a sudden I'm out of it. And I'm like, what did he just say? I think I missed something important, but I don't really know what he said. All right, so this is why I tell you, listen, or you've got to get this, okay? You've got to hold on to this. What I'm about to teach you is as deep as it goes in my understanding, and it's so impactful, I'm going to do it by asking you a question, and I want you to think of this question. Why does God demand that you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Why? Now, to get you to think on that, let's say that you're new to the church. Today is your first day that you've ever come. And Pastor Kyle comes up to you, and he says to you, hello, I want to introduce myself. And after introducing himself to you, he says, you know, I think you're going to really fit in well at Cornerstone if you adore and love me more than anyone. What would you think of Pastor Kyle? Well, I could tell you what you're going to think. This guy's a psychopath. He's a narcissist. I'm not going back to that church. So what are you thinking when God says that he demands, he requires that we love him with all of our soul, mind, strength, and heart? Now, he not only says it that way, but Jesus has the audacity to say, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your neighbor, what he means is that in that Greek word is to love less. Unless you love them less than me, you cannot be my disciple. And part of your flesh, part of you is rebelling and going, I'm really uncomfortable with this. This is really awkward. I don't know what I think about this. Well, how do you answer this? Now, what I'm going to tell you 
And what I'm going to teach you, almost no Christian in my experience understands. No, I'm not telling you that I've got secret knowledge that I'm alone in having. No, I'm just beginning to understand it. And I've been studying this for 45 years. It's slippery. It's deep. But we've got to get it. We've got to understand it. Now listen to this. Do you understand that God does not need you? He does not need me. He has always been completely happy, always contented, always satisfied, always joyful within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no emotional shortage in God. The Father never at any point in history looked at the other two persons of the Trinity and said to them, you know, you two just aren't doing it for me anymore. I want to create people to love me and fill me up. He's never said that. He does not demand your love because he's running short. There are no needs that God has. He's perfectly, infinitely Satisfied. So why did he create us? Now listen, this is the depth. This is the gospel. This will set you free. This will put you on a way different way of living if you can get this. You see, the creation of human beings flowed out of his desire to set his boundless love on others that they may be they may experience the joy that he has always had from eternity past don't you see don't you understand that in his command to love him with all of your soul mind strength and heart is the only way that you can be supremely happy it's the only way you can experience the very satisfaction and joy that he has He's not a narcissist. He's actually so other-centered. This is the means for him to fill you. This is the means for you to have the fullness of life. This is the means for you to be able to have such contentment that you will never need it from anybody else. See, God knows experientially that when we love him with our greatest love, only then can we have our greatest joy. And agape love is an unswerving desire for another's greatest joy. So maybe now you can start to see why did Tim spend 90, 95% of that sermon talking about the display of God's infinite perfections in the sun? Why did he talk about the means and the power to love before he even got 5% to the commandment. It's because if you don't understand the first two, you can never live the third. It's impossible. It is as God's love fills your heart for each other in the family of God, look what he says, that all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, if you have agape love. Here's the problem, and I'm almost done. Here's the problem. It's my problem, and I think it's your problem too. And I'll teach it to you through a trip that Denise and I went on years ago, back all the way back in 2005. We went to Colorado. We went to Longmont, Colorado, which is north of Denver. And you can see in Longmont, it is, it's got the distant 
peaks of the Rocky Mountains. It's stunningly, stunningly beautiful. I'm from the Northeast. We've got the Poconos. So I'm now looking at the Rockies, and my heart cannot stop gazing at them. Denise and I were spellbound by these snow-capped peaks, bigger than anything that we've ever seen in our lives. But all of a sudden, we began to notice as we're driving around Longmont and we're going into grocery stores and we're stopping to get gas, nobody in Longmont was looking at the mountains. We actually began to try to find people that were looking off into the distance like we were. Nobody was spellbound anymore. They had become so used to those mountains, so surrounded by and immersed in the beauty of what they had that their hearts became inured to them, numb to them, desensitized to them. And we began to look at our hearts, she and I. Is that true of us with God? Does the glory of God overwhelm us anymore? Is it so big that our minds seem to shut down anymore? You know, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers uh, ever, talked of a time where God just unzipped a little bit of his heart and poured out love on Spurgeon. And Spurgeon had to beg God to stop. It was too much. It was like his circuit boards were frying. He couldn't take it in. Don't you know, friends, that in heaven, you're gonna have all of God, but you're gonna have a new circuit board you're going to be remade and you will live forever having been transformed all the way to the final degree of glory. Here it's bit by bit, degree by degree, but how does it happen? It's when you go back and behold and you see and you look and you are consumed with the glory of God and you are in the word of God like you've never been before because this is where he reveals himself. And it's not a an act of your will to overcome temptation. It's not an act of your effort to become more patient. It's not an act where you try to persuade yourself to be more loving. No, God is doing it. You're tethered to the one whose feet cannot slip. And he is pulling you up that mountain degree by degree, and he's making you more like Jesus. Why? Because by faith, you are united with him, and you are beholding his glory. Let me, let me end with this. If you are being changed from one degree of glory to another, and that same love of God is pouring from your heart to every person in this church family, the world will know. You know what they're going to know? They're going to know that you belong to Jesus. Why? Because you look like him. You act like him. 
You love like him. You are patient like him. You are long-suffering like him. You have joy like him. You have satisfaction like Jesus. Everything in you is being changed to become more like Jesus. Why? Because you're trying harder? No, you are doomed to fail. No, you're beholding the glory, the display of the infinite perfections of Jesus. And he's the one changing you bit by bit from one degree to another. Christian brother and sister, behold the glory of your God. It's your only hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a sermon that is so important. It's so deep. It's so impactful to me personally. Lord, I'm barely, barely beginning to understand it. And I've been trying to for 40-something years. This is the slippery beauty of the gospel, and our flesh runs from it. But Lord, give us eyes of faith. Let us behold the glory of Jesus. Let us see the display of his infinite perfections. Let us hunger for them. Let us love them. Let us see and and gaze and be obsessed with knowing who you are through your word, seeing how you reveal yourself through your scriptures. Lord, let us go after it harder than anything because you're the one pulling us to you. You're the one drawing us to you. Lord, may you be glorified in us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.